How much of a fascist state has America become under Donald Trump? What does it mean that 70 million Americans, mostly white Americans, voted for Trump's fascist policies? What does the Democratic Party owe black people and how accountable will activists make the Biden-Harris administration be to progressive ideas? And I guess we could say that four years of Trump proved that American exceptionalism is a myth. This and much more on this episode of Black Diplomats. All right, y'all, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Terrell Starr. This week, we are continuing our coverage of the 2020 election results. And here to help us break it down are two outstanding experts of U.S. politics, media, and activism. My first guest is Melina Abdullah, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. She is a professor of Pan-African Studies at California State University, Los Angeles, and was one of the authors of the Black Lives Matter Network letter addressed to President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. Also with us is Anoa Changa, a politics reporter for Truth Out. She is a movement journalist that is deeply influenced by grassroots-led electoral organizing efforts. Anoa hosts the Scallywag Magazine video series, As the South Votes, and The Way with Anoa Podcast. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. All right. So first, I want to do a mental health check on y'all because America is trying to kill a nigga. <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just keeping it real. So, uh, Malia, let's start with you. How was how, how your mental health? I think I'm fine, but I guess if I were off, I wouldn't know it. Would I? Do people know that they're off if they're off? I think I'm fine. I feel relieved. I think. What about you, Anoa? I think that I am. I am hopeful because of the amazing work that folks are putting down all over the place. But I am a bit distressed that I don't think enough folks are taking very seriously what is like we, we're taking things seriously. But I think that our understanding of like both sides doing fuck shit in the government. I don't think we're really understanding like how bad what's happening right now um, actually is in the grand scheme of the next several years of just being able to move things forward. Right. Um, so but but I do appreciate the work of Professor right here and like so many other comrades and folks across the country who are making sure that we're showing up, masked up and, and paying attention to the issues. So at the end of the day, I think I think we're going to be all right. But right now I'm a bit I'm a bit frazzled. <laughs> well, listen, I'm I'm feeling the same way because as a journalist and you know, we're, we're both journalists here and, you know, Melina is been, been out on the streets doing the work. I feel like much of America, white America, particularly in the media landscape, we're not, they are not squaring America with what they think it is versus what it actually, what, versus what they believe it is, right? So there's a difference between the America in their minds and the America that we live. And I think that we, the people who recognize America as it is are the ones that are dealing with the most harm that is capable of enacting on our bodies. So 
I believe that every black person who was born into this country needs a therapist for life. That should be a permanent part of Obamacare. Every nigga gets a therapist, okay? <laughs> you know, like, I, I, I do. I really do. And what keeps me sane is I do yoga, I work out, I drink my tea. I find all of these things that I can do to comfort myself. But also, I'm also thinking about how lucky I am to have a roof over my head. And I'll explain what luck means. I, by New York standards, live a middle-class life, generally. A, a, like a black middle-class life, meaning that I can pay my rent, I have some money in reserve, I can do things, I'm okay, I'm not rich i'm not making like a big salary but i'm doing okay to take care of myself but i think that's luck because in a america that systematically breaks us down economically socially politically for me to be where i'm at i credit the the god that i pray to and luck because under white supremacy all of us are supposed to be dead we're supposed to be poor economically disadvantaged. So I don't really carry this whole thing about my success being I pull myself up by my bootstraps. I worked hard, but this country is not designed for me to be successful. So for any black person to be successful. So when I think about my mental health pulse, it makes me put things in perspective, right? So let's uh, kind of talk about this mess and how we can liberate ourselves from it. So Donald Trump and much of the GOP nationally and locally have yet to accept that Trump lost and are refusing to honor President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Harris's victory. Ivanka Trump, a senior advisor to her father, tweeted a few days ago that every legal count must be counted. Let me rephrase. Ivanka Trump, a senior advisor to her father, tweeted a few days ago that every legal vote must be counted, even though there is no evidence of voter irregularities. And I think that's also xenophobic too. We can get into that. But uh, the governor of West Virginia, Jim Justice said, as far as acknowledging that the election is over, I do not do that. It is the job of the White House to give the go-ahead to government agencies to support the incoming team transitioning to the White House, but Trump has not greenlit this process. National security experts and some GOP lawmakers have publicly worried that this puts America's national security at risk. So I want to start with you, Melina. It's, it's really clear that Trump is not leaving without a fight. His campaign has filed a majority of the lawsuits against the election uh, results in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Georgia, and Nevada on the unproven claim of voter fraud. Let me repeat. His campaign has filed the majority of its lawsuits in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Georgia, and Nevada on the unproven claim of voter fraud. And the GOP is pretty much letting him do it unchallenged. How worried should we be? I don't get worried. I mean, I know that this man, anything is possible. Um, he's having a temper tantrum and doesn't want to leave, you know. Um, 
we know that he could decide to not leave. We know that that's possible. And I think when you ask the first question about mental health, right, we need to be in the present moment. And um, I'm not going to work myself up into a frenzy about what happens if he doesn't leave by January 20th. If he doesn't leave, then somebody needs, I've been saying this, like <laughs> before he was voted out, I've been saying, can somebody just drag his ass? Somebody needs to just drag his ass if he doesn't leave. And let me say this, the military doesn't like him anyway. So if it is a coup, it's not a military coup because he's not going to get them on his side, right? Um, I also think that it's important that this not be a distraction um, because if we get too worried about what happens if he doesn't leave, it stalls our organizing, right? So we need to be working right now on the shit that we know is real. And we need to be building plans um, for what shit is going to really look like. And I don't mean, so I'm, I'm sure your listeners know that there's like a bunch of formations around safety and security. What if the U.S. falls into a state of civil war? I would say in a sense, the U.S. is already in a state of undeclared civil war. There is a war on Black people by white supremacy that's been waging um, for a long time, but most intensely over the last four years, right? And so, you know, these formations are important. It's important to think about what our safety and security looks like, and it's important to not be obsessed with it. Um, and I don't want to talk too much, but I'll just give a, um, one personal example. Um, so you know that I was personally swatted a couple months ago. And initially, um, my response was one of extreme safety and security, right? Um, so a bunch of folks on my team had me relocated. Um, you know, nobody could know where I was. And recently I thought about like where I was relocated, it was all white people where I was staying. It was a affluent white community. And I'm thankful for our supporters who made this home available to me and my children, right? But the internet went out and phone signals were spotty, right? So, I thought about it. I said, am I really safer out here among a bunch of rich white folks with no phone, no internet, and no way to call my people if some shit goes down, right? So I realized, no, I'm not safer because who got me through that swatting was my black neighbors off of Crenshaw who rolled up and said, nah, you're not going to kill our sister by herself, at least we all gonna be here around her, right? So I'm giving that example, so we back off of Crenshaw now. Um, I'm giving that example because I think that it's important that when we think about safety and security, that we don't become so obsessed with traditional approaches to safety and security that we lose sight of the struggle. Sometimes our safety and security comes from being entrenched in the struggle and building black community to the point that we keep each other safe. So in this moment, right, 
as we think about safety and security and the undeclared war on Black people. I think a lot of our safety really comes from doing really intense and communal and um, collective work in this process. And then we kind of have like a built-in army that loves and protects one another in the truest sense. Absolutely, uh, Anoa. Yeah, I mean, I definitely appreciate the the idea of like, we can't just sit and wring our hands and worry about what the other side might do. I mean, I, I also see this in this whole notion that we need to appease people who voted for Trump and, and make them feel comfortable. Like, I don't think folks, you know, to, to, to Melina's point, I don't think folks are being honest about where we are in the present and the work we actually need to be doing right now because it makes them uncomfortable, right? Like having to directly challenge their friends, their family, their community members, it's, it's making other folks uncomfortable. And then for, uh, you know, for some Black folks, whether they're older Black folks or just folks who are just not used to, you know, stirring up things um it may seem easier to just like yeah if we could just get them to calm down and be nice but but like that literally doesn't matter and that strategy has never worked for our folks in the several hundred years that we've been in this country even before it was a country right so when we're looking at whether or not he will leave the question is not whether or not he's going to leave or he's going to comply like they've been having that conversation as you pointed out terrell in the media for like months now and it it the answer has always been the same he's obstinate he's lying outright and they're trying to underma undermine whatever little bit of democratic process still exists and that needs to be addressed head on and on top of that we need to make sure that folks who are looking for information folks who are trying to figure out what's the next step or just even trying to understand that there is a next step that they're getting that clear uh, uh uh you know directives on where we should be moving going forward because yes there is a president-elect and a vice president-elect but like what does that mean to the average person that still has to deal with like folks not believing that COVID-19 is a real concern and not wearing masks or people who might be facing eviction or have not had issues or have had issues with getting unemployment compensation like they're supposed to, let alone whatever the additional benefit, right? We still haven't had additional COVID-19 relief for the millions who have been out of work, not to mention, you know, farm workers, mixed status families, like tons of people who've been less out of profits. I mean, it was just this fall that we learned that actually some folks who were incarcerated were actually also entitled to that stimulus check from the spring. So there are so many moving pieces that directly impact folks right now that I'm not saying that like what, what Trump is doing is not important, but I think folks need to have a real different lens and stop acting like this is business as usual. Like Joe Biden is extremely, I wouldn't even say he's naive. Like that's just the, the peak of white male, you know, arrogance to think that folks are just gonna be nice because those are his boys for like almost 50 years and everybody knows him. So they'll be better with him than Barack Obama. It's like, get it through your head, dude. <laughs> like Lindsey Graham being his friend, like this, this is what's really boggling my mind, right? Lindsey Graham is like supposedly actually a friend of Joe Biden's, right? This is supposed to be his boy. Like he reached out to him and comforted him when his son passed away. Like I remember there was a whole news article about it. And Joe Biden has rightfully won an election and Lindsey Graham is refusing to acknowledge him. And that's his friend. So like, I don't care what type of games folks think this is all going on. This is real life for all the rest of us. And we don't have time to hope and wish and maybe like the good white man can get the bad white men to act right. Like we know that we have to take care of us and we need to be paying attention. And it just being down here in Georgia and watching how they are like 
today, right now, November 13th, is two years to the day when Mary Hooks and Nakima Williams, our congresswoman-elect for the 5th District, and like 15 other folks were arrested demanding that every vote be counted when Brian Kemp crowned himself governor of Georgia with outstanding votes. And yet now we are being told that there are possibly votes not being counted because Trump is upset that he lost. Like, <laughs> like we have to stay focused and mission aligned on what's important right now. Exactly. So I want to read a, a quote from the Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel, uh, according to the Detroit Free Press, in regards to the Trump campaign's lawsuits in her state. So she said that the president's claims of election misconduct are demonstrably false. She added, really, the themes that we see that persist are this. Black people are corrupt. Black people are incompetent and black people can't be trusted. That's the narrative that is continually espoused by the Trump campaign and their allies in these lawsuits. She went on to say that uh, the lawsuits focus on allegations of misconduct in Detroit, a city that typically votes for Democrats and has a majority black population. Other places in the state that have a majority white population where Democratic nominee Biden earned a higher percentage of the vote this year than Hillary Clinton in 2016, such as Oakland and Kent counties, have not been a focus of the Trump lawsuits. So this is a white woman and in, in who is the attorney general of Michigan calling it how it is. And I think that we need more people to start doing that. What we'll talk about more in the show is how media people are not confronting the white supremacy of white people. And I think we know why, but let's talk about that time when Trump told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. And the fact that several militia groups are already showing up to Trump rallies to quote unquote, protect the protesters and to keep the peace. One example of this was uh, at the Columbus State House in Ohio Thursday, and the militia members said that we're just here to keep the peace. And so there are a lot of reports that are saying that these militia groups are arming up and they're preparing for the worst and for violence. So, Melina, I know that all these people who claim that they're here to protect the process and for people to be peaceful, I'm sure none of these militias came to protect you uh, at protests when the abuse uh, from police officers were directed in your direction, right? No, hell no, right? So we we know at our demonstrations, we got to look out uh, for several different security risks, right? So the police and sheriffs constantly surround the space that we're in. They constantly um, use not just tactics of intimidation, but tear gas, rubber bullets, um, they usually have snipers on the roof, right? But then we also have to look out for these white supremacists that on occasion will roll up into our midst. And they usually try to come in. This is where stealth shit happens, right? They usually try to come in with cameras and pretend like they're reporters. But you can always tell there's something wrong with them, right? Like a clean cut white man in a baseball cap or... I never trust white men with beards, right? Um, <laughs> like they come and they're real aggressive and wanna get 
you know, sound bites from people, you can tell what it is. Um, and then you also have to be aware of people who are trying to distract um, from what it is we're doing. And sometimes they're white and sometimes they're not, right? Yeah. By the way, I, I tell people, Melina, that you don't have to be white to aid and abet white supremacy. Absolutely. I mean, the victory we just won in Los Angeles, getting this district attorney out, two-term incumbent district attorney who oversaw the murder of 626 people by police and refused to charge officers in 625 of the 626 cases, she was one of them skin folk who ain't kin folk, right? She was absolutely upholding white supremacy. There's always been a tactic of using black faces on white supremacy when they can, right? So when we're talking about these disruptions and threats to our safety, there has never been an occasion where a white militia member came to protect us or was relied on for our protection. Now, I won't, I'll also complicate it and say that we do regularly use white folks for protection, but they are white folks who, you know, when we pour libation, we call on our ancestors, Fannie Lou Hamer and Yaa Santewa and uh, Mama Harriet Tubman and Nat Turner, and they got one they be calling, John Brown, right? So um, we have a few um, white accomplices who do pr provide um, some protection for us and um, act in a way that is really beneficial to the movement. But there's never been a time when white militia members were relied on for protection or offered protection. And I think, you know, they're complicit, even though they say that they are anti-state, you know, they are, you know, pro-individual rights. They still rely on the state to enable them. So I'm thinking about like what went down in Michigan where white militia members were allowed to not only have their guns, but bring their guns into fucking polling places, right? That they were allowed, and I don't mean um, just open carry, both open carry and what's it called? You know, open carry and also- Conceal and carry, yeah. Right. What's interesting about Michigan is that their top leadership are all women. That's that's the ironic dynamic going here. They're white women. And when people ask me to explain explain what happened, because, uh, you know, this this uh, this earlier this year, uh, armed white men stormed the state house. Right. Demanding to speak with uh, with, with Governor Whitman. Right. You know, over her covid-19 mandates. Here's the thing about white women and their participation in white supremacy, right? It's white women only have currency in white supremacy if they're following the patriarchal component of it, which means they are to abide by the tenets of the white men, right? Because there's patriarchy that's involved in it. There's gender as well. And so when, when, the, when a white woman decides that I no longer am going to participate in this white supremacist construct, and I that that that's when the problem starts, and so that's when they become the enemy, and so. And it's just when they divert a little bit because we're not gonna act like Whitmer is some proponent of black power. She just diverted a little bit from the plan, right? She's not. No, you're correct. That's correct. But also, I'm talking about the perception amongst the white men who stormed that, right. who stormed that state house. So that's a different level. That was. 
even if it's a little bit, that's a little bit too much for them. Right. 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 It just shows you how sickening white supremacy is and the patriarchal component of it. Right. Because she was looked there. They're in Michigan. They're looked upon as women who are not doing what they're supposed to do. So that's just a that's just a different context to it. So, Anoa, what what are your thoughts about about these militia groups? Because you're in Georgia and you have two runoffs taking place. And I've seen these people in Georgia in 2018 rise up a storm against Stacey Abrams. What's the temperature check there now? Um, I think that it's a landscape that folks have always known has existed and has intensified over the last several years. And like literally folks are are making sure they are doing safety checks with people before they go out to, you know, like, does it make sense for folks to go counter protest or do we need to be focusing and staying focused on, you know, the turnout for the runoff elections? We have the two U.S. Senate um, runoffs happening on January 5th. We also have a statewide runoff for the Public Service Commission, um, which deals with utility rates, among other things. And Georgia is one of the states that has some of the worst electrical and other utility bills for, you know, folks across the country. And so that's another state that that's another race at stake that's really important. And we have not had a, a Black Dem win statewide since I don't know, but I think it's been about 10 or more years. So so it's really interesting that I know what's going on with that race as well. But what we are seeing is that we know that these types of folks, particularly in like some of the outlying areas, and they do start to encroach in the actual city of Atlanta and some of the other metro areas as well. But we do know these things exist. I remember uh, canvassing in 2018 down in Albany, Daughtry County, and we were joking, but like also kind of serious about let's make it back to the highway. This is in October of 2018. Let's make it back to the highway before it gets too dark uh, because there's, you know, a stretch of just regular country road before you're actually back at the regular interstate. And I mean, there is still that sense that you need to make sure that you're going into places where you know other folks are going to be at, or at least you're familiar. Like I would not recommend anyone just show up anywhere without having some actual connection to the local community for various reasons, right? Um, but what we saw in 2018, so it is fascinating, we're having this whole conversation about militia groups and the threat on elected officials or those running for office, because we saw this happening very blatantly here in Georgia in 2018 with Stacey Abrams, um, in particular with a Black woman veteran who actually had been working a event uh, as a volunteer that Stacey Abrams you know, she was accosted by someone. And there were several other instances with the same individual. Really? I didn't hear about that. So that was like, like that was a part of the same, like earlier set, like, like I forget the dude's name, but it's, there is like a small, like white nationalist group that like kept intervening at different moments, like in the fall of 2018. Um, and that has a history in like Southern Georgia around Augusta area with being anti-Muslim and some other type of rhetoric. But there were also like videos from this dude on, I think Twitter has taken most of them down, but there were videos talking about like Stacy was the harbinger and was going to bring in or was going to bring in like a new error that was going to destroy everyone, like type that type of rhetoric. And but but literally was showing up at like showed up at like a Kemp rally. So folks see um, the picture of Brian Kemp smiling with the dude wearing like. I forget what it said. It was something derogatory about, about Muslims and Islam. Oh, I remember that. Right? I, I about remember something derogatory that. Yeah, about Allah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, they can say, well, we didn't know who he was, but you knew that he hated Islam and hated Muslims, and you still took a picture with him, right? And so 
we've seen this very direct like hatred like directed towards Stacey Abrams there were some posts about you know the confederacy rewise again unless we don't get rid of Stacey Abrams so, like there was all this type of vitriol attack and what I know anecdotally from just talking to black people on staff is just that they also got some of that vitriol as well right as stoppers but we saw our local media our people record here the Atlanta Journal Constitution not only like kind of like try to both sides and compare that support to like the Dem Democratic Socialists of America saying we record recognize the value of having Stacey Abrams as governor um, to white nationalists who were threatening violence. And then also they tried to say like it wasn't really newsworthy to dig into that white nationalist violence. Like we have a history of political violence against black people for exercising the vote, for, for just speaking up about issues, let alone trying to run for office, right? And so particularly when we're talking about the South, but it's not just Southern, you know, it's not just a Southern issue, but particularly when we're talking about this, the history that, that is up, it's extremely alarming to be at this moment right now. And folks are praising local media for their coverage. And there is some good coverage locally here, but at the same time, we still have a very white male establishment that doesn't really get what's happening right now. And they don't care because it doesn't actually affect them yet. Um, and, and, and they're willing to take chances with our safety and what's happening with our issues because they need to be fair to these other people that are absolutely preaching our destruction and the end of our existence. So I want to go into our next segment, which is the media. My biggest critique of mainstream media is that it lacks sophisticated voices that go beyond the succinct viral talking points and really... Uh, they don't delve into what's wrong with America. And that's racist ass white people. And the reason why we're in this situation is that a vast majority of white people in this country believe that their whiteness is being devalued and that they will no longer be at the top of the totem pole. And we see in Georgia, for example, that is what's going down. In 2018, I covered Stacey Abrams' campaign and much of her targeted campaigning and voter outreach, which I think is tops in the country, and very few people have tried to replicate it because they don't have the will to do so, is that she did not articulate this in these terms, but she said, our future is with people of color and the working poor uh, white folks and I'm not really going to beg people for their support who don't want to give it to me. She didn't say that, but she articulated it pretty much in those terms. And with national media, I'm not talking about the hardworking people who work in the independent media world, but the mainstream voices out there are afraid to confront whiteness because I think as black people, especially, we're taught to work within whiteness, we're not taught to dismantle it. And, and I see this even with black people who are in media spaces. It's like conversations around gender. It's really easy to talk about black women get this much to the dollar versus white women versus any other group of women. But having that sophisticated feminist critical race theory outlook is very absent in mainstream circles, even among people of color, because they don't have the analysis. And I am somebody who went to journalism school for my master's degree. I have always defined American journalism as the white man's diary. It is a book 
it is a record book for white people to record what they think is happening in this country. So, Melina, tell me where is mainstream media particularly failing when it comes to speaking to the root causes of why Trump is undermining the democratic process and why his mostly white supporters and mostly white GOP in Congress are going along with it. So I had to mute myself as you were talking because I was given too many ums and mm-hmms uh, on the side. They are failing, mainstream media is failing in every way, um, according to our standards, according to their standards, because as you said, what did you say? It's a white man's diary, right? They're succeeding in being a white man's diary, right? They're doing exactly what they're supposed to do if they're a white man's diary. But if, if we're to take them at their word, that journalism is supposed to be kind of an expression of truth, they're absolutely failing, right? So at even the, the like basic shit, they're failing. So here you are talking about race, specifically talking about blackness, specifically talking about black organizers. And if you look at any CNN or MSNBC show, who you have talking about it is a bunch of white men. Why are you using white men to talk about black people? Why are you using white men to talk about what Stacey Abrams is doing in Georgia? Why are you using white men to talk about, you know, voter suppression that black people are experiencing in Detroit and Philadelphia, right? Why are you using white men? I mean, we have a whole group. So my doctorate is in political science. We have over a hundred black women political scientists, right? I don't see them tapping, but maybe one or two black women political scientists to do a racial analysis, right? To do a race and gender analysis, right? We don't, we don't need these same talking heads. And then, you know, when they do want to talk about blackness, they pull out people like Michael Steele, who are entrenched in, you know, right-wing uh, politics, and they're acting like he has something to say, right? Where is Mary? Why is Mary? You talked about Mary Hudson-Owen. Mary should be on every damn show until all this shit is decided. Angela, I'm thinking about Angela uh, Waters Austin, and um, she leads um, Black Lives Matter Michigan and is part of the movement for Black Lives electoral justice work. I ain't seen her on that one national show, right? So they're failing if their standard is truth, but they are winning if their standard is to be providing a perspective that is an intentional and deliberate white male capitalist perspective. Right. I, I want to follow up before I go to Anoa. That's, that's what's driving this capitalism. And I believe that capitalism and this is a, I, I won't deviate too far from where, what we're talking about, but I think you brought up something very critical, Melina, is that the capitalist base, which is where American media comes from, because the, 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 um, the main thing is for it to make money, right? 
and media is a financial machine and capitalism extracts. It is not a economic structure designed to fulfill the needs of all of its people. It is designed to put a certain number of people at the top and one at the bottom. And if you get to the top of it, you're lucky. That's what I'm saying. So I'm not one of those Negroes who believe in bootstrapping. And when you think about billionaires, Jay-Z's of the world and the ice cubes, and boy, we're not going to even get into that. You think about who rises up to the top. It's those black people who are lucky because ice cube, a lot of these people come from the same communities I come from. I, I lived a very much boys in the hood environment. and it's easy to talk about, yes, I worked hard. That's the easy conversation. The harder conversation is to talk about the urban planning that created the environment in which I grew up and where my grandparents and great-grandparents from Mississippi and from Alabama and from South Carolina, where all Negroes came from during the turn of the century, where they were migrating up to Chicago, to New York, to Detroit, to the Indianapolis's of the world, and what environments were set up for them to create the poverty that I grew up in, Ice Cube grew up in, Jay-Z grew up in. That's a harder conversation. It's easy to look down on black people and talk about their state in life than looking that white man in the eye and indicting them from creating that system and deconstructing it. That's a harder thing to do. And again, most of us don't have that analysis. And why it's so important with media is that if you don't come in with those theoretical frameworks, you're not going to understand any of this shit, <laughs> okay? And, and, and Professor, I know you know what I'm talking about because you teach people. And you're, you're, you're not going to have any of these frameworks and you can't break that down in succinct sound bites. And when we talk about media specifically, right? If you talk about capitalism and you use the term extract, right? Capitalism is designed for the capitalist class, the ownership class, to amass as much wealth as possible. And they do so through the unpaid labor of the worker, right? So they say, you know, you want to work for me at McDonald's? Nobody's going to McDonald's because the burgers are the best, right? People are going to McDonald's because they didn't feel like cooking, right? And so, you know, when you look at what the person on the drive through register rings up, and I used to work at Jack in a Box, right? Jack in a Crack, right? Um, we would get these hourly reports of how much your register brought in. And it was thousands of dollars. But we got to fight to get $15 an hour for fast food workers, right? That's the unpaid labor of the worker because what we're willing to pay, thousands of dollars an hour, is not what the worker actually gets. They get 15 if they're lucky, and the rest goes to the ownership class as their profit. So when we think about extraction, that's the extraction. But here's how media plays in. People go, well, wouldn't it be, you know, if we think about if it bleeds, it leads, right? That the more astounding and striking and problematic a story is, it should become more profitable for that media company. So you would think that media would be covering, for instance, the 1,100 people who are killed by police every year because it bleeds, right? It's 
you know, something that people would go, wow, this really happened, right? But they don't cover all 1100. They cover maybe five, right? So you think that uh, George Floyd is, you know, one of a few. You think Breonna Taylor is one of a few. You don't realize that in Los Angeles alone, there's over a hundred, right? Um, and so they don't cover it all. Why don't they cover it all? Because it's not just about the immediate profit that comes to the media company. It's also about the entire capitalist class rallying for their collective interests. So if CNN or MSNBC or Fox News even, right, doesn't get immediate profit, that's also by design. Because what they're protecting is the larger institution of capitalism that they're all beholden to. So the immediacy kind of goes out the window. It's about the, so they're social, in a way, they're socialists about protecting the collective interests of their capitalism, right? You're, you're absolutely correct. And you you nailed that perfectly. So, Anoa, we work in journalism and it has to be frustrating for you to know who you know to be as entrenched in the movement as you are to see a lack of sophistication when it comes down to these racial dynamics and these racist reactions of white people. And I don't know about you, but what really offends me is that there is a moral reckoning that always is, is, is always espoused upon us as black people when we do something that mainstream media deems is wrong or immoral. But where is the moral reckoning for white people who support fascism? Where is the moral reckoning of white people or in media who are not questioning why in counties across the country, per the Associated Press, where the coronavirus outbreaks are increasing, Trump got a vast majority of those votes. So these people are willing to die in order to maintain the fascism that they voted for four years ago. What about it in mainstream media that commentators and lead reporters at and these companies can't do it, Noah? Mm, like... I, one, thank you for recognizing me as a colleague, right? Because you know the struggle has been real to just break through into, into, this, into this lane. So appreciate that. Um, also, just thinking about just what you were just asking about, why is it difficult, why they can't do this? I think it goes back to a point earlier when we were talking about like the inability to actually analyze and discuss and address whiteness and white supremacy, right? Like it's so deeply ingrained even into the concept of objectivity and the fact that folks think that they're being balanced in their approach. Like I think about a national voting rights, you know, someone who's looked at as an expert that works for ProPublica during a training, you know, talk to folks about how, well, the groups on both sides all have an agenda. So you have to be careful who you trust. Like to compare uh, you know, more progressive, nonpartisan voting rights groups with these right-wing conservative groups that are, 
like trying to actively disenfranchise voters is ludicrous by saying that they all have an agenda like that that's so simplistic and doesn't even get to the actual like differences between people right there, there's such a lack of nuance when people do stuff like that or we just take official words official sources at their word we've seen this so often with police but they also do it with secretaries of state like even the coverage right now again pointing back here to georgia i mean even even the coverage of the kentucky ag intervening in the pennsylvania lawsuit where it's like, why are you intervening in another state's administration of their election? Like, handle your own business, bruh. I just saw the the, the report of the Louisville uh, uh, police officers and their like cover up of sexual abuse of minors. Like, can we can we please like 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 handle your own house first he, off? Well, well, he well, Noah. Let me be clear. He he doesn't consider he doesn't because he wouldn't consider himself a bruh to you. I mean, like, okay, okay, okay. Like, like that's also. <laughs> <laughs> that's also totally fair, right? But like, there's something that's really happening here that we're not having these conversations and like to uh, like pretend like, oh, well, that person just works for like regular government, like county government. If they work for government, then they have to be smart or they have to know better than everyone else. We literally just saw the new senator coming in from uh, Alabama who did not know the three branches of government and like. I mean, that's like the most basic. We talk about, you know, needing civic education, which is true. But I mean, one would think that someone who is elected as a senator would at least know that the Senate and the House are the same damn branch of government, right? Like not, the Senate and the House aren't different. You're all the legislature. Anyway, but like, <laughs> we we're talking about what's happening right now, whether it's the massive disinformation. I mean, Terrell, you and I have talked about this, you know, because of my own background back in 2018, in terms of all the conversation and with your own, you know, international knowledge around like the Russia interference and things like that. And like, those were real issues. However, we absolutely, in terms of mainstream media, the royal we ignored over the past four years, the growth of the Trump, the very domestic disinformation network that has been expanding. And a lot of it is just very organic. Um, it's organic, you know, growth in terms of like manipulating the algorithms and and the use of bots and other things to just get information out there that's that's American homegrown. And folks used to think about this like in the old days, like there might have been like a newsletter for some fringe right group, but that has very much become mainstream. And this idealism that like, you know, the people on both sides just need to agree and we need to return to bipartisanship. I mean, that ship has never worked like that. That has never worked for the us like regular folks and that ship has absolutely sailed by the time we had folks acting like it was not a problem that birtherism was being used against former president barack obama right like there is no return to some like gentleman's agreement between the two sides and that actually never benefited any of us so we're looking at media coverage now we're looking at what's happened you know in in with the paper in pennsylvania with the reporter who was not allowed to cover any of the protests we look at um you know the paper up in kenosha where the only black I think it was reporter on staff like quit because of the framing of one particular um one particular gathering based on like come a line and one person's comments like the manipulation and exaggeration right like whether people are actively trying to do a thing i think folks are just acculturated in a system that is upholding white supremacy and, and white supremacy is a status quo in america and so we continue to have to push through like a lot of us have to push through and make waves to be able to get news coverage that's more reflective and engaging so talking to movement folks talking to folks who are literally you know advocating for things like the thrive agenda or the breathe act is not like 
you know, being a cheerleader for someone's group. It's literally putting out a vision that exists to help folks understand what else is possible. Because right now we have people who personally value certain issues, but they don't think it's possible because the media tells us it's not possible. Part of why Joe Biden is the president right now, part of why he was the primary, um, the, the nominee in the primary was because media told us, told our black grandparents and, and uncles and aunties that Joe Biden was the only one that could get white people to vote for him. Well, that literally is not what we needed because white people aren't voting for Democrats in overwhelming numbers. That number has not changed in like 40 something, almost 50 years. And we just won Georgia without having to stand on Stone Mountain, the largest Confederate memorial in the country. With We didn't have to do that. And we didn't have to have, you know, incarcerated black men as a backdrop like Bill Clinton did in 1992, right? So like what we're seeing now, what we're seeing in places like Ohio, like folks are like, oh, whatever, like forget these states that didn't flip. We we need to also change the way these representations, these these data representations and infographics are really like breaking down like how the vote works, right? We have amazing wins that have happened at the local level. Maybe whole states didn't shift and flip, but people have been flipping and shipping counties. We're seeing like what has happened, like I didn't check today, but like what we're seeing what's happening in the North Carolina judicial races. Ohio has some local level judicial races as well. I mean, Arizona being reduced to, oh, that's just Cindy McKay and John McCain because people love them instead of understanding that like Latinx and indigenous organizers have been putting in that work against what? White supremacy. I'm sorry. I'm on a rant. But like it is just so no, important you're, you're that okay. we... It's, it's a good that. one. Yeah, it's, it's a good one. I'll end, I'll go in before we close out uh, with, a, with a final segment is that the reason why I never worked in mainstream media newsrooms is because I feared for my mental health. I spoke with many colleagues before about pursuing opportunities in larger newsrooms. And many of them told me that they disliked their workspaces, didn't care for their colleagues, because just getting that black perspective in the ways that we're talking about is impossible. And they look good on their social media accounts and they are out there doing the thing and we need them there. But I feel like it takes a particular type of person who's built for those structures, who actually wants to thrive within those structures and we need them. I realized very early on that I was not the person to do it. And I was fired twice out of newsrooms or pushed out because of the things that I am talking about and the perspectives I'm pushing. And one of them became relatively national story via alternate, which is a more alternative publication. And the publisher ultimately had to step down because of a Me Too situation and rightfully so. But I also tried to become a commentator and I thought I wanted to be a television analyst in 2016 because my background focuses on Russia and Eastern European politics. And one of the things that I wanted to push was that Russia, even though they interfered, my whole thing is America and Russia, they're imperialist nations. Russia was supposed to do that shit. They're an imperialist opponent. That's what happens. And everybody is shocked and 
and really surprise them. Like, uh, Putin was supposed to do that. What, what, what are you talking about? The real issue is we had all this information before and white people voted for Trump anyway. That is the national security issue. We know who Putin is. We know what the Kremlin is doing. And I felt as somebody who focuses on this region that everybody was saying Russia, Russia, Russia. And we don't know a damn thing about Russians. A lot of these people have never lived there. They haven't lived in the country. They haven't learned the language. They haven't done any of these things. And so I tried to bring context and I feel like my perspective was not appreciated and it was so discouraging, which is one of the reasons why I started Black Diplomats and to grow my own network of people so that we can have sophisticated conversations like we're talking about and concerns to America's flaws and how all of us are working to try to make it better. But a lot of that has to require a reckoning. But black people are used to people telling us that we ain't shit. Black people are used to folks saying that we need to uh, take care of ourselves. We need to wear condoms. We need to stop having babies. We need to stop having all, all of these stereotypical things that people uh, in media, as far as stories go, blame us for our downfall, for our economic issues, right? So when it comes to interrogating whiteness, there's this there there's this resistance that 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 is even even by black people in media they don't want to go there because they fear for their jobs they don't want to piss off the white people and the editors in their newsrooms i know this because people have told me this and my mental health got so bad to the point where i i got extreme depression i said fuck them and so i work in smaller quote unquote smaller even though i wouldn't consider the root which is the largest, you know, digital site. I wouldn't call it small per se, but it's not white mainstream. And my mental health is more secure as a result of that. So I want to go into the final segment before we go off and pretty much talking about how American exceptionalism, if we don't know by now, is bullshit. So there, there are a whole lot of definitions of the term. And so I'll use the one uh, by Wikipedia because it sums up all the variety of definitions and and professor, we can kind of break this down. So basically, it's American exceptionalism is a European-born critique of the United States of America that the country sees its history as inherently different from other nations and that it is uh, considered to be the first new nation. It's the ideology that um, defines itself as having a unique mission to transform the world and that Americans have a duty to ensure um, and government of the people, by the people and for the people shall not perish from the earth. And that it America, America in its history has um, a superiority over other nations, basically. And I travel around the world and people talk about this idea of America being this great nation and I have to explain to them that, do you know that there are dozens of states in this in, in our country that actively work to disenfranchise people from voting? Do you know that we have the most deadly, the, the deadliest uh, police force, arguably, in the world, at least one of them? Do you know that we live in a country where people are struggling to have living wages, our poverty rates are high, unemployment is high, and much of the time, particularly in Eastern Europe, you have a lot of uh, Europeans that come over here and I have to explain to them that 
because I'm usually the only black person that they know and have a conversation with, I have to tell them that you may not notice all these disparities and all the racism that I'm talking about because when you come to America, even though you're ethnically Russian or ethnically Ukrainian or Belarusian or Hungarian, in America, you're white, <laughs> okay? And so you're not going to see these same dynamics. So, uh, Professor, what do you say about American exceptionalism and this idea that American democracy um, should continue to be an example of, uh, to, to the rest of the world? I think you're lifting up a lot of key points um, about what America, yeah, we're exceptional. Let's look at the rates of poverty. Let's look at the fact that, you know, there is no guarantee to basic shit like food. Let's look at, you know, before we entered into this pandemic, there were 60,000 unhoused people in Los Angeles County. And now I would bet that it's over 100,000. Like the, um, I keep, when we see all these tents that um, are all over, not just downtown Los Angeles, but all over South Central LA now, all over the East Side now, all over near Venice, um, Venice Beach. It's it's a it's a um, camp, right? And when you think about that, I keep saying to myself, if this were any other country, there would be an international human rights outcry, right? And so when we talk about American exceptionalism. America is exceptional. It is different from other countries um, and in some not so um, positive ways, right? In the ways in which it allows the dehumanization of its own people and allows um, the continued, another vestige of slavery, of chattel slavery, is the continued dehumanization of black people in particular. And so I would challenge it with that. When I used to travel internationally, there was a degree of shame that I would carry, right? Like um, when people would say, are you American? I would be very clear, I'm African-American because I don't wanna be held responsible for the policies, not just of the Trump administration, but the global policies, the foreign uh, policies of America. Um, because it's been hugely problematic. It's been, um, you know, colonialism is still here. It's been, you know, the imposition of rampant capitalism at the cost of human life. And I don't want to align myself with those policies. So I'm African-American, yes. And I think that some people would, um, people would get that pretty quickly when I put that in those terms. Absolutely. And Noah, what do you think? <sighs> I mean, you know, Professor Molina has just said it all. I mean, we're, I, I just think about the opportunity even to travel, right? And now we have the pandemic, but just this notion of American exceptionalism, I mean, I think Professor, Professor just said it perfectly, right? We are exceptional, exceptional in the ways in which we are a disaster for black and brown folks, for indigenous people, for exacerbating wealth disparities and just like the ability to live, right? I mean, we are a country where people die because they lack access to actual healthcare. Um, 
when I used to work for the federal government, I worked for social security and it would like pain me when we would be denying cases of people who had exacerbated conditions because medical experts were like, well, this is treatable. It is treatable if you have insurance. Like if you don't have insurance, diabetes is can be a death sentence, right? If you don't have insurance, um, like with my own health, if I don't have insurance, if I'm not able to pay for my monthly treatment, like I am going to be someone who is unable to carry out my normal daily activities and will be bedridden for probably upwards of 16 to 18 hours hours a day. So like there are real issues when we talk about like how wonderful and exceptional America is. And this isn't America. This is absolutely America by its creation, right? Like having white, predominantly white men right now try to invalidate the votes of, you know, predominantly folks of color, in particular black voters across the country, having predominantly white men targeting, you know, queer people across the country or trans people. Like that is literally who America has always been and was at its founding, no matter whatever wonderful quotes we can find in historical record from the, you know the founding fathers and their and their close friends like this is who they were like folks treated our liberty and existence as if it was a, a merely academic question to solve at some later date and they still punt it down the line as if it's just some you know hypothetical scenario that maybe we'll ever get to around addressing like when we talk about reparations right but what do we need to do that for without really any actual understanding of how what happened uh, or ended a Officially, technically, allegedly in 1865, is still very much a present and real reality through decision making, policy making. You mentioned urban planning earlier, Terrell. I mean, when we talk about the decimation of Black communities because of the highways, because of other urban renewal, slum clearance removal programming, we talk about the creation of public housing and the segregation that happened when we started shuttling families into public housing while building white enclaves called the suburbs. I mean, that's American exceptionalism. So when we're talking about like what we're seeing right now, we're seeing a real decline and what we build, what comes next, I think gets back to the earlier point, you know, Professor Melina made about like how we need to deal with the present and start planning and building because we need to be putting our agenda out there. We need to be like setting the, the conversation going forward and we need to help folks understand that it's okay to believe and dream um, what might not have seemed possible five years ago is absolutely possible today and it will definitely be possible tomorrow. So final words, Professor, what are your hopes for America moving forward? Look, this is a moment, and I love how Anoa phrased it, um, that we have the possibility to usher in things we didn't think were possible five years ago, right? This is a moment when the world has cracked wide open, and my kids hate that I constantly refer to my favorite TV show, maybe of all time, Lovecraft Country, when you know there's the literal cracking of the world open. Like I've been saying that, and then you see it visually in this television show, right? Um, this is a moment when we can have our most radical imaginings if we're willing to untether ourselves from the existing system, engage in that work of freedom dreaming build collectively and work vigorously with everything we have to take advantage of this moment. We can't be timid about it. We have to be courageous about it and we have to cling to each other and build a world that works for us as a collective. And I think that um, that's my hope. Um, when I see what 
our young people are doing. I'm thinking about the incredible work of the Black Lives Matter Youth Vanguard, um, organizations like Students Deserve. Um, and I mean, our young people like our children, like their willingness to say, no, we can have all this shit and we can have it right now. They're not willing to settle and they're not willing to wait. And I think that that is um, not just a moment, I'm not just in a moment of hope, I'm in a moment of deep faith that um, we will usher it in as long as we don't um, become distracted and um, tethered to the world as it is. Anora, 30 seconds, final words. I mean, just make sure you get yourself a plan for what's to come next. Uh, folks always talk about finding a movement home, support, you know, good, honest journalism that is doing amazing coverage that's talking about the people and the conditions and issues that matter. I mean, I just, I just think we have to be prepared to be more present and consistent with this work for the long haul. One of the greatest tragedies white supremacy has inflicted on Black people is that it has killed a lot of our capacities to dream. As Black people, we are conditioned to believe that dreaming is not practical. We are conditioned to believe that, quote unquote, action, particularly within the respectable standpoint of getting a job, going to work, and just playing a game, getting a house, buying a car, being able to have a certain amount of money in your bank account is the greatest that we can achieve. We are taught that having imagination, looking to artists, looking to thinkers is something that people who are not serious do. We have been fooled into believing that white people do not imagine the world in which they choose to live. When you think about President Donald Trump, he is nothing more than a white supremacist fantasy. He is somebody who maybe it may not be him directly, but people dream of a man who will carry out the type of policies that he is carrying out. He is a man who has run on the idea that I will preserve your whiteness. I will preserve who you are within the racist context of America. Black people have been taught that we can't think about creating a Google. We can't think about creating a world in which we can exist without police. I think it's worth noting that there is a time when people thought that the abolition of slavery was impossible. There are a lot of people who couldn't see beyond Jim Crow. We were conditioned to believe that the world in which we're living now was not possible 100 years ago or even 60 years ago. And so my faith is that, Professor, with, with all the great work that you're doing and Noah with, with the work that you're doing, that we can help people, Black people particularly, reimagine who they are as human beings. And as opposed to accepting what white people have defined for us, we will define who we are ourselves and we will define the world in which we live. And ultimately, that's a world in which we are not tethered to the oppressive rules of capitalism, that we are not tethered to the rules of a political discourse that says that we must negotiate and live and love 
our oppressor. I believe that we will move to a day where we will end the slavery in our minds that push and peddle this lie that we are supposed to get along with people who want to kill us. But most importantly, we will live in a world where we will thrive and live in peace independent of what this white supremacist construct thinks of us. So, well, y'all, we did the show. Thank you so much. Great talking to you, Anoa. Really great talking to you as well. This is exciting. This was a good way to start my Friday. So thank you both. Exactly, exactly. Talk to everybody next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Black Diplomats. We appreciate the support. Please go to Apple iTunes, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is and rate us with a five-star review. And go to our Patreon page where you can find us under Black Diplomats and donate to our show. We're eager to grow the podcast and give you even more episodes, but we need your support. Thanks for listening. I'm Terrell Jermaine Starr, signing off.